Hello and welcome to this month's edition of Riley's Commie Book Club. Uh, but we've 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 taken it and we've twisted it because instead of just me figuring out frantically how to talk about one book for a whole hour by myself, which is really, 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 really hard. Uh, instead, I am here uh, with the expert on this month's book, its author, uh, Peter Fleming, who is a professor at the University of Technology, Sydney, and author of The Worst is Yet to Come, a post-capitalist survival guide. Peter, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for having me on your, uh, on your show, uh, Riley. Oh, no, no worries. It is a genuine pleasure. Usually we, well, usually a, a lot of the time we, we, we're a bunch of goofuses who talk to, you know, a bunch of other goofuses. Uh, and, and instead of, you know, talking about real stuff, we tend to go on extended riffs about like soup or how the first slaves were Irish or, you know, all, all that kind of nonsense. Fantastic. You know, today we are talking about, we are talking about very serious stuff. And to kick us off, I'm going to ask the question that's on all of our minds. Why is the popularity of the adult ball pit in London a sign of things to come? Well, I think it's a very, very symptomatic uh, uh, trend, um, us wanting to return to being children. You know, um, we can't escape our jobs. We can't escape the city. Uh, I lived in London for, for many years, and the sense of universal um, immiseration is very, very difficult to escape. And so where do, you, where do you escape to when you've got nowhere to run? Well, you begin to imitate uh, patterns of life that were once deemed to be freer. And, uh, and, um, and, and being a child, being a child is, is, is one such um, uh, activity. So I see it as a kind of mimesis, a, 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 a repetition of a, a, you know, a psychoanalyst would say that you're repeating, you're repeating, a, you're repeating something that was always initially a trauma, but it's been recast as a moment of freedom. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that's about right. And the more I think of sort of modern capitalist society as essentially infantilizing, it's like the more I start seeing it everywhere. So one of the other places that I sort of see this is not just in how we engage in recreation, where we're just sort of want to not think about anything and feel like a kid and play Disney movies and this bullshit. Mm -hmm. um, but that I feel like more and more we're endlessly being graded um, and auditioning for things and being sort of evaluated. And all of a sudden, the entire world is like you're sitting in a classroom and your boss is your teacher. And um, the Department of Work and Pensions is your principal. And everybody is there sort of poking, prodding, measuring and evaluating you to see if you're worthy to progress through the next stage gate, essentially. Like it's all just kindergarten and preschool. Well, that rationalization is pretty intense at the moment. And even children, you know, um, are kind of thrown into the examination process um, from a very, very early age, you know, I'm in my, I'm, I'm in my, um, in my forties 
And when I look back, and I don't think it's necessarily um, with nostalgia, but I don't remember the, um, the the staunch examination process being so intense. And you're right, you know, it seamlessly moves into the workplace as well, that evaluation. So I think the um, the phenomenon, the, the ball pits that you're talking about is this kind of moment in which we're trying to retrieve or re, re, uh, revive, revive this moment of childhood that we never actually probably had. Um, that we missed out on, and it's a and it's, it's an escape in a system that has little escape uh, routes available for us. So um, yeah, no, definitely, definitely, wouldn't want to be a kid now. <laughs> I mean, and, oh, fuck. I mean, it's this is this is actually something I was thinking of um, yesterday, and I you know, I love to really just kick a show off on a huge bummer, but I feel like isn't it so bizarre that we're in a point where I sort of woke up in this this morning and I thought, I hope I don't live too long because I hope I die of natural causes before it becomes impossible to live in a comfortable or dignified way. I think I'm the first generation, maybe, <laughs> who's ever sincerely had that thought. Oh wow, yeah, no, well that's um that's a that's a that's a that's a good thought, you know. There is there is um there are things worse than death, um, and um, and that's kind of um, something that I think is on all of our minds. Um, but then again, I guess you know, if suddenly someone said to me, you know, uh, if my doctor said, you know, you've got terminal cancer, you know, would I be saying, oh well, you know, I had a good, good, I had a good, good go at go at it, and my, you know, I'm okay. No, I'd be like, I'd be shitting myself, right? And I'd be like, going, no, no. So uh, uh, I think it's. Uh, I think I, I think it's um, important to keep these things kind of in a little bit of uh, perspective. Well, this is why one of the things you talk about in your book, like really, really spoke to me, which was like the idea, like you were talking about sort of um, this this sort of almost constructive pessimism, where like it's on the one hand you've got you know cheerful morons like Matt Hancock who we can all profitably ignore because he thinks that apps will replace the NHS. Um, but then on the other hand, you've got almost like the, the optimistic socialists like um, Naomi Klein, for example, who think that, like, there, we, that there is sort of a better future out there that we can see from here. But it seems like what you're talking about is this, like, like we say the, the worst is yet to come and we should believe that it's going to get worse so we can understand that like, the revolutionary potential of needing to get better. Yeah, no, definitely. I think that was the motivation of the book, you know, um, and it's a pretty bleak book, you know, it wasn't particularly pleasant to write, to be honest. Um, Fucking hell, <laughs> I'll say it was pretty bleak. I was reading it just being like, just being like, damn. Yeah, yeah. This is very upsetting. <laughs> you know, I just thought I'd just layer, layer it on, you know, and um, usually you pull back, but I thought, you know, just when I thought I should pull back, I'll put another layer on just to see where it goes. And um <laughs> And, and 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 the result kind of is, uh, is is what you read, but I think that you know, yeah, I I, I kind of call it a double bind that um, you know, on the one hand, um, uh, a certain pessimism and negativity has been kind of co opted by the system, that it's no longer kind of hoping that we um, happily identify with it. Um, it wants us to see a pessimistic outlook, you know. Um, and I think that's always been there in neoliberalism. There's been a scepticism about things like trust and, you know, community and uh, and so forth. And that's become quite endemic. So that space has been 
uh, are, are colonised to a certain extent. Um, and you see this in, you know, um, Trump's a great example, Brexit's a great example, you know it's bleak. And then on the other hand, the the um, you have, particularly in the, uh, certain left-wing circles, but also in, 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 in liberal circles, this kind of attempt to kind of say... Well, we have to be optimistic because otherwise, um, how are we going to even think about alternatives if we have no hope? And so we have these double binds. So in both both situations, you know, you're, by double bind, I mean that you have to go into either camp. There's no other. There's no no other route. And so I really just wanted to transcend those two that that, that dichotomy, that dualism, and look for a space in which. Uh, a conceptual space in which um, radical pessimism um, could be turned into a progressive force, um, and I really think that um, that that's quite useful to to you know I do sincerely believe that it's going to get worse from here on in, and um, and you know we haven't hit rock bottom, um, and you know it feels like it, um, it feels like the only way is up, you know, but. Um, but I think that the proper mature attitude, the adult attitude, um, ironically enough, given our previous uh, theme, is to um, brace for the worst and take and 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 to be politically um, politically sensitized to that. So I'm I'm put in mind of uh, the episode of The Simpsons because everything to me is The Simpsons, um, where uh, they're they're digging for the cat burglar's gold and they've dug themselves so deep in the hole that all they can think to do is quote dig up stupid. <laughs> yeah, that sums it up. But, <laughs> dig up, dig up. <laughs> so what I'm, but you know what this this reminds me. I mean, I had a whole bunch of notes, but fuck it, we're just going off script at this point. That's all right. Well, what, but what it makes me think of is like that we're actually ju- are now seeing in the in the UK and the US, we're in the midst of seeing it getting worse right now. Mm. I mean, because I think that anyone imagining that the US government shutdown where is going to end anytime soon is probably a fantasist um, because the the whole ideology of the right now has been the annihilation of society, right? Mm-hmm. So... What better way to annihilate society than just to stop having national parks, right? Like those are just gone because Trump has decided he's not going to fund them. And why would he? Why on earth would he fund them? He doesn't care about national parks. I mean, it's it is the slow winding down now of American society as a going concern. The same thing with No Deal Brexit. I think Theresa May is going to sort of is going to um, bend on the idea of No Deal Brexit. No, she's got her mandate, which is kick out the foreigners, and she's willing to burn the country down to do it. Mm-hmm. Like in both of these cases, U- U.S. and U.K. society are like. I don't. I wonder. I don't. I don't even. I don't even know what it is. Like, are we? T- are do we just need to fight a war so that our sort of bored horny old men felt like they did something worthwhile with their lives i'm not really sure but like our two of our societies have just decided that they're done and they're just sort of winding down and however many resources you had at the moment of wind down that's how likely you are to be the leader of your wastelands motorcycle gang yeah no exactly exactly it is quite phenomenal you know uh six months ago i thought and this is when i was writing the book i thought you look i you know reflected on it and i thought you know peter you know we probably have it can't get any worse than this you know what are you envisaging here you know uh, a complete meltdown and um you know six months later you know it has got worse that what's happening transpiring in the u.s is just phenomenal 
um, a, a level of self-harm by the elite that is, that is um, you know, um, I think unrecorded and uh, unprecedented in, in, in US history. Um, and I'm amazed that something hasn't happened. I'm amazed that people haven't taken to the streets. I guess the teachers are doing that now to a certain extent. Um, massive strikes um, among the um, uh, uh, primary school teachers. Um, but, um, you know, I guess what the problem is, is that if the elite goes down, it's also interconnected. And we see this with Brexit. If the elite go down, we go down with it. Um, and that's a scary thing um, because um, we really cannot, you know, we, we, if the, if we really cannot get off the boat if the, if the power structure, which is neoliberalism's moved so um, uh, uh, strenuously to gain con- complete control of society and to put all of its um, energy into creating that totality. Um, and now it's folding back on itself and we're kind of going down with the ship along with it. Um, and that's a really sad part. That's the part that makes me really kind of motivated me to write the book, you know, um, that um, that we, we, we need to do something about it. Um, and but, you know, I'm, I'm the same as everyone else. I'm just I'm, it's, it's a spectacle. I'm just watching it on the news going, uh, I can't believe it, you know, um, and being astounded by the next news flash day after day. Um, so it's a very, very kind of difficult impasse that we're in at the moment. Well, I think one of the reasons it's sort of, it's, is so debilitating is, and like, I think because like, you, you and Mark Fisher were friends, right? Yeah, we were, we were friends. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, and you, we, you, you speak of a couple of Mark, of Mark's sort of core concepts in your, in your book, like you sort of build on them. I think one of the, one of the big, big sort of Sort of, I guess you could say, operating forces here is uh, cap is capitalist realism, mm-hmm. um, which sort of, in brief, is the kind of deflationary perspective that makes it seem like the economic power, the economic power structures that were in place from what 1972 are sort of natural and immutable and unchangeable, and we have to work sort of within them because anything beyond them is not just impossible to do, but incoherent to imagine. Mm. Um, I think the and I think the other thing at play here that you sort of evoke is, is is hauntedness, where we sort of at the same time as we feel the, the capitalist realism constraining us in sort of as we clock into another Amazon job where well of course we have to wear monitors on our wrist that buzz if we move in the wrong direction because that has to increase efficiency because it has to increase returns and if returns increase then I keep my job and I can keep my hab unit whatever whatever but at the same time. The hauntedness of the things we could have done, the, the knowledge that a global distribution network like Amazon, were it in sort of popular control, would bring us more towards utopia. And the only person standing in between us and that is Jeff Bezos and every police officer. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Now, Mark, Mark Fisher's um, work, I think, was, um, was really important. And you can see the influence in, 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 the, book, um, in the book I've written. But his, um, his concept of the, haunt, of, of the hauntology, you know, um, I think is really important. That idea that we are, we are, we are, we are not at one with ourselves. We're haunted by this, these lost futures that could have been. Um, uh, particularly during the radical uh, ruptures of the 1960s and 1970s, um, 
And I think that's a that's a really useful idea, um, and it kind of chimes with his um, notion of um, acid communism, the book he was working on just before he died. Um, and there's kind of notes um, and uh, that have just been published in um, uh, in, a, in a book called K Punk, kind of notes on that notion of acid communism. And um, and I think um, and I think that's a really kind of uh, interesting way of think rethinking you know he was always rethinking this notion of capitalist realism how did capitalism transform into from a prescription what we ought to do um and what we ought to how we you know during the reagan and thatcher years you know was always this kind of like normative stance this is the way we should go to one in which it it's really a description this is what reality is um adapt to it no matter what um, otherwise, you're going to be um, you're going to be destitute. There are no alternatives. How did that transition occur, and how can it actually be? Um, how can it be dissolved? How can that real that ontological realism be dissolved in a way that is um, meaningfully progressive? And um, and I think that um, that's what we should be thinking about in terms of breaking up the solidity of that. Um, I call it a false totality. It's a totality that 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 would like to pretend it's universal. And of course, no, no society is universal, um, but it's certainly done a very good job in creating a pretense of being such. And I, I think when we talk about sort of trying to rebuild, regain or not rebuild, but at least regain some of those lost dreams, I think a lot of people sort of. Because we think of the world just as divided into the private and public sectors, we think of the public sector as conflated with the state as the only way that we can do that. I think that's why so many socialists, especially new socialists today, are sort of electoralists. They think democratic socialism means just Mm -hmm. electing socialists and hoping they do socialism from the organs of the state. Mm -hmm. Um, But one of the, and this sort of lets me, and I don't think we're going to be able to actually build the kind of transformative society we need to get beyond, you know, this sort of neoliberal hell um, with the organs of the state because it's undergone a historical transformation that you chart from the, well, state into the nan- what, what was often called the nanny state of the 1970s to what you call the stepmom state of the 1990s to the psycho nanny state of the sort of post-2001, post-2008 era. Mm-hmm. I want to know if you could describe that a little bit more. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, um, well, I think at the present time, the state um, and um, the technocratic uh, infrastructure and machinery of the state and the politicians and advisors of the state and so forth really is now kind of the big problem and if it was if it was once part of the solution to creating a, a social socialist uh, democracy then you know it's as far away from that um, as we can think of I think um, and so what I tried to trace in the book and I was basically trying to explain um, a couple of things mainly around um, immigration policy in the US and UK which has become really, really nasty and, um, uh, t- you know, tyrannical in, in some cases. And I was trying to figure out, you know, what's going on here when the state is no longer, um, and it probably never was completely, but no longer a vehicle for um, uh, achieving certain progressive measures. I think of the NHS in the UK 
which is um a wonderful thing you know the, these things don't these, these things are being dismantled and we have what we have um a really nasty situation when it comes to statecraft and governmentality and so what i do is i um rather arbitrarily i have to admit but um it was fun trying to construct a history of the state um according to peter fleming um but it was uh I, what i argued is that what i've argued in the book is that we've moved from that kind of nanny state which we all know about the welfare state to um, the neoliberal age, um, the heyday of Thatcherism and Reaganism, and you know we had it in many other countries. What I called the stepmom state, where the nanny is thrown out, and instead we have the stepmom who's uh, who's um, notoriously distant and clinical towards her adopted children, and the adopted children were of course us. And, um, you know, um, tough love and all of that sort of stuff and very kind of clinical. Um, now we've moved to a phase, what I call a psycho nanny state. And basically it's the return of the nanny, but she's gone crazy. And, um, <laughs> and she wants to control every part of your life. She's still dressed as a stepmom, as an HR manager, but she's crazy. And, um, and, and, um, you know, you just want to run when you see her, um, um, and I and I think that's quite a useful useful metaphor to describe what's happening in a number of Western societies, the US and um, the UK, and a, and a whole host of other societies, countries, and economies as well. But I do have that qualification at the end of that chapter called the psycho nanny state, saying, you know, you know, what we are dealing with is a very male kind of phenomenon as well, um, and so maybe the nanny metaphor is not quite accurate. Uh, because the nanny, the psycho nanny, um, kind of points to a certain uh, demented femininity, and I think that we're dealing with a masculinity here that's gone completely haywire. And so, so I do have a number of qualifications, but yeah, the psycho nanny state, I think, is um, is is scary, is um, kind of anathema to all of the things that we should be uh, working towards and um, is going down the drain um, with, with, with the rest of this, with the rest of the system, I would say. Well, it's one of the things that I think I want to pull out here is that is the fear you get when you are forced to interact with the psycho nanny state um, or the drill sergeant state or whoever it may be mm-hmm. um, where, and this is almost something I want to sort of pull back to uh, the death of homo economicus where you talk about sort of being trapped, either being trapped in the unemployment industry or trapped in the prison system, or anytime you come in contact with the state, it is, it is clearly designed to be a disciplinary instrument. You know, it's like, yes, well, it's like it's a floor to catch you if you fall, but the floor is made of activated tasers, you know, so you don't yeah. die, but you are shocked into climbing up back up the ladder. Yeah. Um, and what's clear, what I, I always think, I think, I think of neoliberalism myself as a kind of, I, I think of, if you think of the, the state as a set of institutions, and these institutions are things that initially were, to, to some extent, say, built, built that things that we built together, things that the organized labor movement created, whether it was the NHS or as, as sort of pressure through like labor politics or through the, week, the weekend, an institution we have mm-hmm. through militant labor in the 19th century. These things we have made together that neoliberalism takes and presents back to us as a sort of parody mm. where the, 
the the welfare state that we created in as as a working class in the in the 20th century has been transformed into this into this perversion where the welfare state is has turned from something to catch you into a floor made of tasers to make sure that you get back up on the ladder and its purpose is no longer to ensure a dignified life it's because at some point somewhere the designer of this demented machine realized that it was better if people who were would otherwise die from falling onto a pit of spikes just fell onto a pit of tasers because then they could keep climbing the ladder even if they kept slipping back onto the tasers you know it, it feels like it's become torturous i think i think that metaphor is better than the psycho nanny state actually <laughs> <laughs> well, i guess i think it's because <laughs> the thing, the thing with the psycho nanny is that it's still personal. It's still yeah. a person. It still yeah. sort of recognizes you individually. Whereas I think the idea of, of a machine sort of captures some of the sense that this has been sort of it, it's built as this sort of impersonal slow motion killing machine that we're all just sort of standing in. Yeah, the state. Uh, no, the, you're exactly right. The state has um, turned into this punitive, punitive. Um, uh, 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 kind of um, punitive machine and architecture that is, you know, certainly not dwindled or withdrawn like um, all of the theorists of neoliberalism said, you know, the state must withdraw, we should have free markets and and the state provides law and order, but that's all. That certainly hasn't happened. It's, It's ballooned in many ways and it's become the protectorate of um, a class structure. And you know, when I was at university, we used to um, hear about you know vulgar Marxism and um, and 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 then with you know and and the, the vulgar theory of the, the vulgar Marxist theory of the state was um, this is in the economics classes and political science and all of that sort of stuff. The, the the vulgar Marxist theory of the state was that you know the state is a merely an instrument to maintain a class structure. And we and we used to we we learned all of the critiques of that. That's so simplistic, you know. It's so functional. But now, when I think about it, yeah, that's pretty much it. You know, um, it's it's it's, it's not far <laughs> off. It's not far off. Um, and in so in some ways, society has been kind of redrawn over the last over the last ten years, fifteen years, into this kind of vulgar Marxist version of how capitalism works. Um, it's been boiled down to its basic tenets. Tenets. And it's um and and all of the niceties and all of the sophistications, you know, the postmodern kind of sophistications, they've all they've all evaporated, and we're really just seeing the sheer brunt force of a economic system that's holding on to a path that is clearly failing, and it's clearly kind of going to implode very soon, um, and the state cannot think of any way any way out either. And it's kind of wedded to this path, and um, and that that would you know if the elite went down the drain, it wouldn't worry me too much, and it wouldn't worry a, a lot of us too much. But as I said before, you know the totality is a web, and it's a web that we're all kind of connected into, and we'll go down with it, unfortunately. And so, you know, this the, the book has a very bleak uh, view of the state. You know, I think that, and I'm not necessarily an anarchist or. A, or 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 a um you know libertarian socialist in any in any way but um and I and I and I see many of the great achievements of the state in the past but at the present time 
it's so obviously geared towards protecting a very small, rich minority who are who are in their kind of you know um, gated communities. It's so clearly geared towards that. It, there's no longer any ideology to hide it either. Um, it's 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 so visible and it's so patent, you know, um, that um, it's very very difficult to be positive and optimistic about how the state's going to unfold um, in the near future. Well, without without sort of I, there are a couple more things I want to I want to sort of talk about about the state, and then I want to move on to sort of talking about sort of like robots and utopianism and stuff. Mm-hmm. But one of the things I think about with the state is um, okay, well, two things. Number one, this is a challenge to the listener and, and to you, Peter. Imagine any time you interact with the state or have in the last 10 years interacted with the state since the financial crisis that wasn't disciplinary. Maybe the NHS. Yeah, I think, I think it, would be, it would probably be the NHS. Um, I'm just thinking what else, you know... Um Immigrant, because I'm also an immigrant uh, to the UK. So uh, oh, when yeah. I when I was dealing with when I was dealing with immigration, immigration, um, I have uh, friends who have kids in schools, and that's just basically teaching to te- teaching to tests. Mm-hmm. Um, I even used to back when I, I I used to do that. I used to be a tutor, and I would like I would talk to these sort of brilliant young people who were curious and wanted to actually learn things and challenge things and learn ideas that were outside the curriculum. And so we'd spend half the lesson talking about that. And then the other half being, okay, forget about that. Now we have to just learn the sort of motions you have to go through. Yep. Disciplinary. HMRC is disciplinary. Pay your taxes or you go to jail. Yep. Um, or don't, not just that, but fill in the form right or you go to jail. Yep. Um, uh, 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 every, uh, the, the, even like get, getting your getting your sort of job seekers allowance or universal credit, fill in the form right, go to everything, get evaluated, or you go to jail, or you get sanctioned, you starve to death. Everything is disciplinary. Um, yeah. Except, but not for the rich. If you're wealthy, then you have act. Then there is a special department at HMRC that fills in the form for you by liaising with your accountants. Um, and that's how you get your government benefit because quite often you just get paid back. Um, if you send your child to a private school, then they get their education consultants. They get so the tests get tailored to them. If they're if they're trying to find a house, house there's sort of property concierges. They like, everything for them. Like they everything for them is sort of so wonderful and gentle, and everything for like the, literally everybody else is this brutal disciplinary institution that's there basically to make you terrified of interacting with it. Yeah, well, that's, uh, I think that's the purpose, you know, and this stems from the ideology that we've, uh, that we've been discussing, um, over, over the course of our, of our conversation that the ideology of neoliberalism is basically one that wants to create a certain subject that is, um, amenable to free market capitalism. And to do that, ironically, you need a state that is A, very intrusive and always in your face and punitive, but B, that hates itself. Uh, the state, self-hating state, I think is very, very important um, uh, characteristic because how can you be a proto-neoliberal capitalist, um, uh, identify with the ethos, but also have a strong state, but also be a, 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 a state de- technocrat. You know, it's a paradox. So there has to be this kind of self-hatred. And that self-hatred comes through in various means as well. I think we see this 
in all sorts of forms, but the US governmental shutdown is a classic case of that, isn't it? You know, it's um, the, the state eating itself. Um, but you're right, you know, I think that, you know, future work, future research, future philosophy, social philosophy really needs to focus on the state. And it's probably happening, um, people are probably working on this. But I think that, you know, the state is such a powerful institution, um, <clears throat> uh, but it's been perverted um, in such an awful way that we really need to think of the state again as a public institution rather than as a punitive one. Um, and a whole mindset, a whole shift in mindset has to occur for that to happen because because at this stage, you know, the, the, the mindset of the of, of governmentality, the, the state statecraft, as it's called in political science, is one that is really kind of very, very sceptical about the public sphere. It's very sceptical about public involvement in, um, in, 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 in running their own affairs and having some representation um, via the state. So I think we need a really, what we really need is just a, a very radically new philosophy of the state um, in which to breathe life back into it um, so I'm not, I'm not, um, you know, and it's, it, I'm not, I'm, 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 I'm not necessarily a, a, an anarchist in that respect. You know, I still believe that there is, there is hope that the state can be, um, kind of turned back to a progressive agenda, but critiquing the state from the point of view that we're doing it now, I think we've got to be very careful that, you know, because on the right, on, on, on the radical right, there is a very anti-state agenda as well. So I would not want to kind of um, feed that particular menacing machine either um, when we're critiquing the state. So we've got to be very, very careful about how we word it and how we frame it. Well, I think that's, that's where um, I, really, I always sort of really liked uh, what, John, what, what uh, John McDonald's evocation of the sort of Old mark, old sort of. I think it was an Italian communist phrase of of in and against the state, mm-hmm. um, where that is that is how a modern socialist party must work is to understand and grasp the power of the state while at the same time trying to um, dismantle its disciplinary tools or trying to dismantle the vast majority of its capacity to be disciplinary. But I think where like radical pessimism comes into this is like to imagine that this is going to be easy or is going to be the matter of just voting in Jeremy Corbyn is fantasism. You know, this, this is, this is a far from guaranteed to work and B it's probably not going to be easy because this is, I can't remember if this is what I said when I was talking about your book or a different one, but um, that we always say, okay, yeah, well we're going to go in and then we're going to make, you know, Jeff Bezos or whatever pay his fair share of taxes without realizing that someone like Bezos, even if it's the law that he has to pay his taxes, every pa- tax he pays is voluntary. You know, every law he chooses to follow is voluntary. And at some point, we are going to have to accept that we are going to have to make people like Bezos do things involuntarily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Um, and, and, you know, you're completely right about Corbyn and the... Um and you know, um, and this kind of fantasy that um, that uh, it will all be corrected, um, and and that a public sphere and a democratic vitalism would be 
vitality would be resurrected um, along if we just elect the right people. You know, uh, the state's gone too far down this kind of awful path and that the people people in the state don't really matter that much anymore. And I think that, um, and that's important to keep in mind. I think it's also important to keep in mind that, you know, we don't want to be too romantic about what the state was in the past. Um, it has, you know, always been a capitalist state. I think the neoliberal or the psycho state version of it is a particular extreme rendition of what the state has always been in, 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 in that regard. So it was never, the capitalist state was never a, never a friend um, in the way that we're thinking about it. So I think that's, I think that's a, a, a critique of the state today shouldn't be one that sees the 1960s and 1970s as, as this kind of blissful utopia. There were many victims, there were many, um, there were many kind of, um, travesties uh, enacted by the colonial state is a good example that we need to keep in mind. But it has um, been a vehicle for important progressive um, uh, trends with the healthcare system in the UK being a good example. Um, Do we just want to walk away from that? Um, And I'm not too sure I would. No. Well, I think this is... This is what I always sort of bang on about, sort of especially when I speak to my my liberal friends from university, um, uh, where I said so they say, "Well, what is democratic socialism?" And I say, "Well, part of it, sure, is electing socialists in democratic elections, but that's like one part of it. Another part of it is, for example, creating bottom-up institutions that are designed to serve the interests of the people creating them." And so, like for example, a local investment bank that that funds sort of worker co-ops, but isn't concerned with profit making and isn't owned by like fucking Lloyd's mm-hmm. or whatever. That that is also a democratic socialist institution. Like it, they, they've conflated democracy with voting, and I think it actually takes a bit of radical pessimism. It takes a bit of understanding that you know what, in many ways, not in all ways, but in many ways, like fuck to the state. You know, it, it, you need to understand that, like, this is not going to be as easy as an election. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be as easy as waiting for something to get automated or whatever. It is going to take, it is going to take actual inventiveness and radical pessimism is what I think it takes to spur on some of that actual inventiveness. But you can see, like, and the reason I think of a public bank is I was just put in mind of, like, Proposition Eight from one of the last elections in California. Mm-hmm where they're trying to do exactly that. They're trying to create a local investment bank that isn't tied to Wells Fargo. And, you know, and, right. and, it's, and it's looking at socialism not just as a state activity or something you can do when you vote, but something you can do on a daily basis. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, um, uh, you know uh, socialist democracy is certainly just not electing and um uh, uh socialist or semi-socialist politicians it's a way of life and it's a particular stance towards what i what i would what i suggest is the public sphere being one that is one that is first and foremost before before the instruments of the bureaucratic state take take place so i i would totally agree with you that um it is a particular attitude and it's a way of life and it's a particular set of enabling uh, institutions for self for self governance um, and um, and that's and 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 that's uh, that's that's interesting what you're saying about what's happening in the US you know I I think one of the most depressing depressing histories um, 
corporate histories that I can think of in the UK was the co-op, the co-op bank, um, how it began. It began, you know, as a workers' cooperative, and it and it ended. It ended with it being this kind of almost garish. Um, there were scandals with the CEO, you know, taking cocaine and and all sorts of bizarre things, you know, living the corporate high life. How it went from that kind of workers. Um, cooperative that was genuinely set up for insurance and so forth, community run to this kind of um, stereotypical, uh, reckless, um, high risk taking corporate entity. Um, and I think that's an l- interesting little historical microcosm of what our society has kind of um, the path our society has followed more generally. Um, and um, and so, so I think those grassroots um, activities, it's definitely, definitely very important. Um, and, you know, so does that mean I'm going to tell everyone, don't vote? Remember Russell Brand was saying that a few years ago. He was, he was saying, you know, don't vote, don't vote. I'm not too sure about that. I don't know. Um, but I do believe in that phrase, and I cannot remember who the, who the, who, who, who the author was, but, you know, um, if, if, if voting made a difference, they would have outlawed it years ago, right? But it's the, uh, well, the whole thing, I think the thing to remember is like, especially in the States and now with like voter ID laws and stuff, they are trying to outlaw it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. They are. Like, like, <laughs> like that's the thing. It does, it, 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 you can tell it does matter because they're very concerned of making the people they know will vote against them not do it. But one thing is that if you listen to sort of the sort of 40 some odd minutes of this of this conversation so far, you'd think your whole book was about the state. In reality, I'm just very interested in the state. And I sort of I really like what you have to say about it. But um, the worst is yet to come. It's about a lot more than the state. And uh, one of your chapters uh, in the book that I quite enjoyed is called uh, Shitty Robots, which Mm -hmm. I think sort of goes and really sort of yanks the idea that sort of greater automation means a better life for everyone and really sort of puts it under this sort of sickly white light of, well, just saying, well, no, actually, it doesn't. Um, And there is this incredible, um, there's this incredible uh, uh, juxtaposition I found, uh, which was from a couple paragraphs from an article about SoftBank where they're talking about their investment in WeWork. So... I'm going to read this now. Uh, WeWork's potential. You're familiar with WeWork, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So it's for anyone who doesn't know. Well, we, we've talked about it before in the show, but I guess if you don't know somehow, it is a shared office space that tries to be your whole life. Um, so WeWork's potential lies in what happened, when, what might happen rather, when you apply AI to the environment where most of us spend the majority of our waking hours. I head down one floor to meet Mark Tanner, a WeWork product manager, who shows me a proprietary software system to monitor their buildings. He starts by pulling up an aerial view of the WeWork floor I had just visited. My movements from the moment I stepped off the elevator have been monitored and captured by a sophisticated system of sensors that live under tables, under, above couches, and so forth. Sensors installed uh, near this office's main floor help WeWork do things that opt to maximize their employ- the people working there's experience. I did a bit of paraphrasing. Um, and helped WeWork discern that morning lines for coffee were long, so they added an extra barista. WeWork executives, of course, assured me that the sensors do not capture any personally identifiable information. So there you go. You're being monitored wow. all the time, 24-7. Every movement you, you make, 
But hey, they're using it to tell that you want coffee in the morning. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think in that situation, I'd want a lot of coffee. I think I just want hemlock at that point. Hey, brew, me a, brew me up a nice old, brew me the Socrates special. I'm going down. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. I love it. I that's love the it. essence of, that's the, that's the essence of the shitty robot where you give up all of your all of your sort of autonomy any expectation of privacy you may have had ever but this large collective is then able to use all of that information in ways that benefit you like yeah. telling you that you want a coffee in the morning <laughs> it's like it's and this is the essence i think of the shitty robots chapter where it's like yeah the improvement the the, the if you look at the quality of the of life that you get by having all of your movements and preferences and so on tracked and analyzed by large companies really all they can do is tell you stuff that you and presumably they if they have a modicum of sense already knew but what they get is something much more powerful yeah no definitely definitely yeah that that, that, that chapter that was uh that was really kind of as you as you kind of very, very nicely kind of um, uh, uh, described it is really trying to show how sure there's been these major leaps in technological development automation in the workplace etc cetera, etc cetera, but it hasn't abolished work it's just made it more 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 miserable to do um, and um, the human factor is still very very much part of any social order that is governed by and controlled by these um, algorithms and the big data and um, and, and, and the AI-equipped uh, automation, but it's just a lower level of life that's involved. Um, and so I was really trying to also kind of question this this kind of this this kind of idea that was that's been quite popular that you know we might be on the cusp of a post-worker society with the with the way in which AI is developing in the industrial sphere and um, and in the workplace and so forth. But I was just looking around, I was thinking, hold on, this doesn't make sense, you know. Um, everyone seems to be fr- as frenetic as ever. Um, unemployment are at record lows. The jobs are awful and low-paid and low-skilled. Um, so I was trying to figure out how can we have a theory of... Um, uh, computer uh, computerization, cybernetics, and so forth, but also see how it interlinks with the perpetuation and even the reinforcement of the ideology of work, rather than rather than it dissolving the need for a job. It seems to be reinforcing um, the ideology of 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 work, um, and and basically the shitty robot was all I could come up with. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, it, it's, it's, I think it's, it's, it's sort of half true because I think the robot is terrible at giving, at giving most of us anything of any benefit. Like, oh, great. I can like a page on Facebook and, you know, my ads will be slightly more customized to my preferences. So like the algorithmically generated t-shirts will like get my birthday right when they say, yeah, it's a Gemini thing. Um, but at the same time, you know, now I am, I, I, I can be micro-targeted with, you know, electoral message. I mean, I don't think the far right would micro-target me with electoral messages unless they really believe in horseshoe theory. Um, but, but you know what I mean? Like, it's all of these things are just, it's, they're, they're not shitty for the people who built them. They're no, excellent no. for the people who built them. They do exactly what they want. And they do it super, super well. Yeah. You know, it's, um, it's, it's one of these things where it's like, it's, 
we we mean you talk about sort of the um the rope the the golem turning the entire world into a hill of beans. Well, that's the that's the Hebrew myth where the golem turns the entire world into a row of beans because yeah. there's no one tells it to stop. Yeah. Or then there's the paperclip monster where that turns the entire world into paperclips because yeah. the AI no one ever told the AI to stop. But the fact is, it's that sort of infinite acquisitiveness, that in, that infinite ability to sort of transform, control, and dominate. That's what we're actually scared of. All AI does is make it more. It just facilitates it. All it, it, any technology, te- the word technology, it just comes from the Greek Greek root techne, meaning skill. Mm-hmm. It's just neutral facil. It's just facilitation. It itself is neutral, but a moment it exists in the real world, any actually existing technology is always part of a power of a power relationship. And so it's ne- there is never going to be a, an automated way for me, a consumer, to monitor how much um, my phone bill, say, is overcharging me and if they might actually owe me, you know, a 50 cents uh, uh, back on my bill, but they are always able to automatically clean out my bank account because there's a one penny I haven't paid interest on. Yeah, no, definitely. You know, that's that's def- uh, so so it's always an expression of very human relationships and very human power relationships. And if you inject um, AI and machine learning into the psycho nanny state, going back to the state or the corporate the corporate. Um, uh, 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 the corporate matrix, then you're going to get a very narrow, very ideologically biased um, expression of technology. And I think that's what we're seeing, you know. And this is why I think that, you know, we've had computerization, for example, for the last 35 years. It's not new. Um, and we've had sophisticated um, uh, uh, automation and industry for, for, for many, many years. Um but we're still working um, ourselves into the ground, you know. Um, it hasn't got rid of work and it hasn't got rid of, it hasn't created this kind of leisure society or, um, you know, this beautiful uh, 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 kind of um, society of play. Um, it seems to have quite um, quite successfully um, articulated a particular view of how our society should look, and it's uh, and that is neoliberal capitalism with a very brutal edge to it. Um, and so, I think we need to be very kind of careful about how we treat. I think it's. I always thought of it as a red herring, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Well, here's. I, I would actually disagree with you on one point. I mm-hmm. think it actually has created this post-work society of play. It just hasn't created it for us. It's created it for Kylie Jenner created it for jeff bezos's ex-wife and a live girl whoever she is it's created it for them they have that good point good point i'd agree with that definitely yeah Uh, uh, um, Yeah. so it's like this this is like sorry go ahead oh sorry post post workerism for the one percent or the 0.1 (laughs) percent yeah well and it's uh you've you've read four futures life after capitalism by peter frace yes i have actually yeah i really enjoyed it yeah, so it's it's so ba- I th- I think like this is your your book for me really tied in with that one where it's like w- at the end he's like look it's not all these four futures which are um sort of whether on a on a two by two matrix of hierarchy and scarcity you know if we can get past scarcity but we still have hierarchy then we live in a rentier state where everything is controlled and copyrighted mm-hmm. um but there doesn't need to be if we have um 
get past scarcity and have no hierarchy, then we have fully automated luxury communism, post-workerism, wonderful. If we still have scarcity and then we have no hierarchy, we have um, sort of more standard socialism, as you might see it, which is just worker. We still need to work to produce, but we're in control of what we're doing. Uh, and then if you have hierarchy and scarcity, then you get exterminism, which is where the rich basically just kill everyone, which is sort of what we're in now. Yeah. Um, but that these things can all sort of exist together where you have sort of utopian communism for the rich because they're engaging in killing the rest of us, whether that's through commission and sort of America's increasing drone war. Uh, whether that's uh, through the militarization of borders and the sort of systematic drowning of migrants, whether that is austerity, killing the poor by uh, by omission and mm -hmm. grinding more and more of the formerly middle classes into the poor who mm -hmm. are fit to die because they've failed a, a fitness for work assessment or what have you. This is all basically so that the cast of Maid and Chelsea can continue fucking each other in the toilets of uh, Shoreditch clubs. <laughs> now that wasn't an image I wanted to see. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you, forgot right. about, you, forgot about, you forgot about the opioid crisis in the United States, you know, which is a purely... Oh, how could you forget about that? That's a, that's a great example of, uh, or a depressing example of what you're talking about that's been t entirely manufactured um, by this ethos. And, and so, like, this is why I also then want to pull back to one of your chat. I, lo I love how I'm totally going in order here. <laughs> I want to pull right. back to this other chapter where it is capitalism a cult? And I mm. think the vast majority of the working class the, or, and the middle class has basically just decided it's willing to die because of the cult that it's in. Yeah, yeah, that was that was um, that, that, that basically trying to because there's been lots of talk about, you know, capitalism as a religion, as a belief structure. And it clearly is that going back to Walter Benjamin in particular, who kind of did some very interesting um, thinking around that. So I wanted to kind of extend extend that idea into a cult um, and use the metaphor. And maybe it's not even a metaphor. Maybe, you know, maybe we are in this giant cult um, in which trying to get out of it is very, very difficult. And that the leaders of the cult would rather um, face, rather perpetuate their own demise than see then see um then see their cult dissolve and that uh the the people entrapped in the cult um escape and the reason why i was thinking about the cult is that i'm just amazed after the 2007-2008 crisis that we didn't have some major rethinking about how um economy and society should be should be organized how you know the same old doctrines of neoliberalism were really kind of applied even even more ardently than than it was in the past. I was I was amazed, you know. And the only way you can really explain that is if you go to the social psychologists who look at cults, you know, when doomsday cults. Are, uh, I, I think I I used the example in the book, you know, doomsday cults who believe that on. You know, uh, February, uh, uh, January the eighteenth, two thousand and nineteen. When, when, when um, the clock turns turns twelve at midnight, uh, the world's going to end. And so, social psychologists have been fascinated with this because those cults ardently believe fully, fully, you know, uh, in this prophecy. So, what happens when the prophecy invariably doesn't um, 
doesn't transpire when it fails, that the world is still there. Well, they change their mindset and they say, well, there's all sorts of things that happen. Um, maybe special forces stood, stepped in and, you know, UFOs and aliens, you know, stepped in to save us, you know. And the cult actually, re- the failure of the prophecy actually reinforces the belief structure. And I thought this is exactly what's happened among the technocratic elite of neoliberalism after 2008. It did not really question the veracity of its ideological thinking. It became even more stringent and even more um, uh, uh, faithful to the doctrine. Um, and so, and so therefore we can go to, um, I actually went to the website cult watch so uh, to look at tips on how to escape a cult <laughs> and they've actually got some very good tips you know you know uh, 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 don't tell them that you're leaving you know pretend and then kind of jump out the window find a friend you know um and and when they and, and when they and when the and when the cult kind of try and track you down at your at your parents house you know don't answer the door and all of that sort of stuff and, and, and be prepared to go through a withdrawal period. And I thought, hmm, this could be a useful way of escaping what we're, we're facing today. Well, there's actually also, there's another, I read this article, and you know what I was actually put in mind of as well, is another kind of cult um, that I think a, a lot of, you might say, not, not the technocrats, but a lot of, say, people in the working classes especially, especially sort of extremely online Instagram people um, have, which is, I think they're all, they're almost in a cargo cult where there is this whole cottage industry of talking about hustle and self-help and, you know, building your online business. One, you know, audio book, but recommended by Bill Gates, listen to on double speed while jogging and taking a nootropic or whatever at a time where it's just this, there are all these beliefs that if you imitate the behaviors of executives, you too can live an executive life where it's just a cargo cult. Where all these people who believe mm. that if they wake up at six and you know do all this, they're just going to be successful because they're working very hard. You ask them, well, what are you working hard at? And they're like, success. And it's like, what? Mm. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> and I think it's what it's what we have is we is because in and if if listeners aren't familiar, cargo cult um, sprung up throughout sort of Polynesia in in the twentieth century after sort of like like native islanders would see americans come build sort of airstrips uh on their islands to supply them in their in the war in the pacific theater and then it looked to the native islanders like oh well these foreigners are teaching us how to summon gods which are the planes by doing these elaborate rituals and so when the americans left they were like okay well now we want some of that cargo so we're just going to build fake watchtowers and put on coconut headphones which they thought were religious gear and then we can summon planes and so what you're doing is you're imitating all the behaviors without sort of understanding the underlying networks that create it and so I, I sort of see a lot of people in capitalism, whether that's Instagram hustle people or, you know, even just people who work hard at their jobs or whatever, like they're just in a cargo cult where it's like, you know, you're just imitating the behaviors that you think will bring all this success. But if you look behind every like, you know, allegedly self-made millionaire, 
you'll find that actually their family had a had an emerald mine in South Africa, or they inherited some some sort of ungodly sum of money, or like even the even the so-called influencers that they all love, like Caroline Calloway, who we'll be discussing on the episode tonight that I'm recording. But if you're a free listener, that'll be months ago. Whatever, um, uh, not months, month. Um, where uh, all of this is really just ways to obfuscate the actual working of actual inequality, where none of this effort stuff matters. Yeah, I think that um, entrepreneurship in particular has been this kind of weird, this weird kind of um, phenomenon in which we think that we're going to all be, you know, these kind of um, wealthy Bill Gates uh, like um, uh, uh, people. I don't know if the ideology is as strong as it used to be. It used to be very, the whole enterprise ideology was pushed in the United States, Europe and UK, New Zealand and Australia very, very um, fervently in the 1990s. And I think people have probably cottoned on to, onto the nature of that ideology. And then it's been a bit of a a bit of a scam. But what you're talking about is really interesting, this kind of mimesis, the mimicking of the um, the CEO. Um, there's a really interesting book um, called The CEO Society that was just published um, by a couple of uh, people that, that, that I know, uh, Carl Rhodes and Pete Bloom. And they're arguing, and they really have this interesting kind of um, idea of the ideology of the CEO p- permeating not only politics, but everyday life um, to the point where, you know, they look at books like um, with titles, um, What of Buddha Was a CEO? Um, you know, that, that uh, it's, it's, it's just really, really hardcore. <laughs> it's really hardcore. But that, I love that. that. <laughs> yeah, no, you, it's, it's, it's fascinating. They, they dug up some... Awesome. Fi- what, what, if, what if Bismarck invented TikTok? Yeah. <laughs> my, my favorite, my absolute favorite book is What If Confucius Was an Influencer? Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ, SoundCloud rapper, burning up the charts now. <laughs> and so I guess I want to sort of bring it, bring it home with sort of one last little section here, um, which is... So coming back a little bit to sort of party politics in the state, because I think we've talked about how things are getting worse and how we need to be like radically pessimistic to understand that the traditional valves of things getting better, whether that's electoralism or technological development or, you know, just general human, just uh, trusting in human nature and hope and togetherness and stuff um, probably isn't going to work. But the last thing I want to get around to is almost is 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 ending on like a a little bit of sort of a a we kind of a weird high which is to talk about my favorite british cabinet minister uh matt hancock mp the um the minister for health and social care and my precious angel um who is basically can be summed up as a a cheerful idiot who shouldn't be given um charge of a dull pencil uh, but he is he's just so innocent and, and, and naive. It's its too bad he has any power because I think otherwise he would be like, you know, a, a, a really excellent sort of village idiot. Um, <laughs> so this is sort of uh, last thing is on. Don't, on don't, sugar, don't sugarcoat it. Don't sugarcoat it. Tell me how you really feel. <laughs> <laughs> what? If, 
<laughs> so this is on, on the fake utopianism of Matt Hancock. Um, and so this is around how he's trying to sort of eradicate the NHS. Um, so uh, Nicola Blackwood, a former advisor to online private GP provider Push Doctor, has been appointed as Health Minister for Innovation, a title which includes digital health. Uh, by Matt Hancock. Blackwood will now work with Hancock, leading on many other things, industry engagement with NHS, innovation, digital, and technology. Push Doctor Chief Executive uh, Weiss Scheifte said, Nicola resigned from our board on the 9th of January to pursue this fantastic opportunity in government, and she leaves with our thanks and best wishes. Um... The fact that she has been appointed to such a prestigious role shows the caliber of, of individual our board attracts and how strongly the government believes in the future of digital health. Of course, Mr. Hancock has previously come under fire from GPs who accused him of promoting his friends' companies like Babylon or Push Doctor, um, who said that they were brilliant at taking pressure off the NHS and expressed a desire for wider uh, access so that loads of companies can do what Babylon is doing. Now, this is very bad. This is obviously a someone trying to roll back uh, the one good element of the state that isn't disciplinary and make it more sort of disciplinary and technologized. But the world is getting worse as deeply competent people squeeze us harder. But the last the vestiges of the structures that were supposed to protect us from them, which now sort of mostly just depress us, are literally staffed by like the cast of the Three Stooges. Like they have left their their worst and dumbest in government. And it is, I, I don't want to almost be too accelerationist about this, but it is very easy to radicalize people against someone like Matt Hancock. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. And I think um, if there is a moment of, uh, if there is a moment of optimism um, in our discussion, then I guess that, and we kind of touched on it earlier, I guess that it's that, um, you know, the veil has fallen. Um, and power is so stupid, you know. Power is intrinsically stupid. Um, hierarchies are intrinsically stupid, as um, the the fabulous work of um, David Graeber, um, the utopia of rules, kind of points out. You know, power is generally, right from the start, not really in touch with what's going on below in terms of the hierarchy, but now it's being boiled down to its essence. We really see incompetence, disarray, um, kind of uh, 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 gormless, gormlessness in, 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 the, in the corridors of, of power. Now, of course, does that translate into the radicalization of the public sphere and a... Um, uh, does that trigger a, 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 a grassroots democratic response? Um, that translation is always the tricky part, isn't it? That um, seeing seeing power as incompetent and um, unworthy of any position of governance, seeing that and 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 that's and that recognition translating into political activity. And, and 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 a radical kind of rejuvenation of the public sphere. That's the big leap, I think. And it's never a mechanistic relationship between those two things. Um, but, you know, um, I think that all of the ideologies and the frills of neoliberalism have really kind of been evaporated and burnt away. And we're seeing the skeletal structure, if you like, of the power system. And... And that's what this book is really trying to kind of um, uh, 
uh, uh, uh, uh, kind of refer to in the sense that we can see the power structure, we can see how it's um, how bent on maining society, and just because we can see that doesn't mean that it's not going to get worse. So therefore, what should our response be to that? And if that's optimism, uh, that, that's my weird Fleming's weird bent on optimism. It's uh, is a pretty bleak optimism. <laughs> and I think that's as good a place as any uh, to to end, because otherwise we won't end on a high note. <laughs> Fabulous. Uh, so I'm going to say, Peter, thank you very much for coming on, and we'll link your the the uh, repeater books uh, link in the description. And uh, that's I think that's going to be it for us today. Fantastic! It's been lovely speaking with you, Riley, and uh, thanks for the opportunity to chat about the book. Yeah, you as well, Peter. So buy the book early and buy it often. Thank you.